Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, we read, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxers, for they are God's ministers, uh, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, custom, to whom customs, fear, to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. The theme of Romans chapter 12 was service, and the theme of Romans chapter 13 is citizenship. We are called out of this world, but we still retain responsibilities in the world in which we live. And the church isn't interested in party politics, but the individual Christian can certainly use their God-given gifts and privileges as citizens to see that the best leaders are elected and that the best laws are enacted so that we can exercise freedom in Christ. The things that we're concerned about is a government that allows us to worship freely, to speak freely, to honor God in the most free manner. There are examples of godly men and women that God used in governmental influences to his glory. We think of Joseph in Egypt. We think of Nehemiah who was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And Daniel to the king of Babylon. And Esther, the wife of the king of Persia. Paul has written about the believer's relationship in love in chapter 12. Now Paul writes about the believer's relationship to the law and to the government. In chapter 13, Paul appeals, and he makes this appeal on four motives. We're to be subject to the government for wrath's sake in verses 1 through 4. We are to be subject to the government for conscience' sake in verses 5 through 7. We are to be subject to the government for love's sake in verses 8 through 10. Good Christians are good citizens. And Paul will give three reasons not to resist the proper exercise of governmental authority. The first reason is theological. God supports law and order. The second is social or cultural or what we might say practical. Civil disobedience, Paul writes, brings severe consequences. But the third is internal or personal. Our conscience will be bothered. Our conscience will become intolerable if we continue to resist the government. We're called to live with a guilt-free conscience. And because we're called to live with a guilt-free conscience, we want to do our best to obey God. So Christians are subject to civil authorities. At the very beginning of verse 1, look what it says. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And who are the governing authorities? Well, in the broadest sense, it's the of the term, it means the powers or the authorities that exist. You and I use the expression, it's the powers that be. In a more specific sense, it means governments. Governments exist by permission of God. 
the civil governments have been established, either directly or indirectly by God. Paul writes, let every soul be subject. Now this is an interesting word, but it's not a word that's very familiar, at least to the contemporary Christian living in our culture and society. You see, there's a difference between the word, let every soul obey the governing authorities, and let every soul be subject. The word subject in this particular instance and under this particular context means to submit. We are familiar with the passage of scripture that talks about how children are supposed to submit to their parents and how wives are supposed to submit to their husband, how everyone is to submit to Christ. And we as Christian citizens submit to the governmental authority. We submit ourselves and refusal to submit constitutes resisting the authority of God. Freedom-loving Americans will say, well, look, what if they ask me to do something that's absolutely against my deeply held convictions or against my conscience or against the scripture? What if the government asks me to do something immoral? What if they ask me to do something that contract or, or, or contradicts the commands of Christ? And as we've learned the scripture and as it has unfolded, we've discovered something that wives do not submit to their husband when their husbands ask them to do that which is illegal or that which is immoral or that which violates the command of God. When children are instructed to submit to their parents, is there an exception? Of course, if the parents ask them to do that which is illegal, that which is immoral, that which is unconscionable, that which goes against the commands of God. And the same is true for the Christian citizen. The scriptures say you must be subject to them. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be subject? And clearly the apostles in the book of Acts were warned by the governing authorities of the Sanhedrin not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. They were ordered not to preach Christ. And so what did the apostles do? They continued to preach Christ, but they submitted themselves. They submitted themselves to beating, to confiscation of property, to imprisonment, and sometimes even death. Paul himself was subject to the civil authorities. Paul was brought to Agrippa. Paul was brought to the high priest. We have every reason to believe that Paul was brought to Nero. We would like to believe that Paul is here writing of good government. That he's writing about benign government. That he's writing about healthy government. But Paul will later argue that government exists to do good and to restrain evil. But what if a government does evil and restrains that which is good? And it's happened in every single culture, in every single instance. I, there are several times that you can think of right off the top of your head. What would it have been like to be a Christian in revolutionary America in 1776? Imagine you are a deeply committed Christian living in 1776 and you're reading the Declaration of Independence. What are you to do? What are you to do if you live during the Civil War? What are you to do if you live in Nazi Germany? The issues surrounding the Christian's role in relationship to government is not something new. And Paul reminds the Romans that government is appointed by God. So what are the origins of government? Government first appears in human history in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. We learn that the establishment of the family takes place in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. God ordains marriage and, and he ordains the family. 
In Genesis chapter 9, he ordains human government. How do we know? In chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. The ability to understand that there is such a thing as value, goodness, justice, and the exercising of justice launches human government by God. And the highest function of government is the judicial taking of life. This is the one thing that's emphasized by divine decree. And the reason why it's emphasized by divine decree leads each and every one of us to understand something. Government exists for the purpose of protecting its citizens. That's its primary God-given role. Like everything else entrusted to human beings, whether it's marriage, whether it's government, whether it's even the church, it doesn't take long for fallen human beings to fall into tyranny. Government proved to be a heady wine for a fallen race. And by the time you finish reading Genesis chapter 10 and you come to Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12 and you read the story of the Tower of Babel, we discover something that the moment that God ordains government, human beings form a government and then they kick God out of the government. But it was never supposed to be that way. Human beings organized in Babel and this time they set up individual rights. But in the declaration of individual rights, it was the right to rebel against God. By the way, the world's first United Nations with its headquarters in Babylon become a type and a picture of the last government that will appear on the planet Earth. Genesis chapter 11 and 12 foreshadowed Genesis, Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. God is familiar. God knows. The, the reality is that there is a God who is seated in heaven and he understands that sometimes human beings collectively come together for the purpose of trying to figure out how do we get rid of God in our government. The book of Daniel reminds us that God ordains the rise and fall of human governments. In Daniel chapter 4 verse 17. You'll remember that when King Nebuchadnezzar received his vision from on high. And Daniel also received a dream. It was a picture of the unfolding of human government with Babylon. And the head of gold at the top. With Persia and the, the shoulders and breast of, of silver. Of Greece. And then of Rome, God is very familiar that a series of human governments rise and fall. But what do we do if the government is bad, if the government is corrupt, if the government is illegitimate, if the government is communist or repressive or corrupt or evil or maniacal or totalitarian? What about Sharia law? What about the young woman who is at this very moment eight months pregnant in the northern part of Sudan? She's already been convicted of adultery. Her death sentence has been reaffirmed. She's been sentenced to die. The Sharia law, of course, won't execute her until after the baby is born. And then they will give her some modest amount of time to wean the baby. But make no mistake about it, they are committed to killing her. What do you do if the government is extremely liberal or extremely conservative? What do you do if a government seems godless or Christless or hopeless or useless? And we discover something. That the institution of marriage doesn't cease to exist simply because abusive marriages exist. The institution of government doesn't cease to exist simply because abusive governments exist. The institution of the church doesn't cease to exist simply because there are abusive pastors and abusive leaders. 
The scripture doesn't seem to suggest or allow exceptions on whether the government is appointed or elected or just or unjust or legitimate or illegitimate. We're subject. But again, like all scriptures, we have to read both the text and the context. We cannot rip these words out of their context at the expense of the rest of the scriptures. Clearly in Matthew chapter 22, in verses 17 through 21, the religious leaders in Jesus' own day are trying to trap him. They're trying to pit him against the abusive, oppressive Roman government. And they're hoping to trap him by, by getting him to address this issue of taxes so that if Jesus says, Jews, you must pay your taxes. All of the Jewish people will hate him. Or you have to rebel against an abusive, corrupt government. Then the the Roman government can use this as an opportunity to take him and kill him. So in Matthew 22, 17, they say in verse 17, Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness. And said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. There is... Hidden even in that statement, the reality. Who mined the silver? Caesar. Who dug it out? Caesar did. Who melted it down? Caesar did. Who hired the die engraver? Caesar did. Who hired the artist? Caesar did. Who was given the right to coin the money? Caesar. It belongs to him. Whose image is on it? Caesar. And in whose image is Caesar made? That's exactly right. According to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, we are made in the image and the likeness of God. The very fact that you are a human being created by God, reflecting the reality that there is a real God who can enter into relationship and fellowship. The very fact that you are a human being reflects the reality that you are created by God. You're made in the image of God. And ultimately, everything about you owes its loyalty and allegiance to the God who created you. But the Bible teaches that human government exists by the authority of God. Paul tells us that governments are appointed by God. So again, what do we do if the laws of the civil government conflict with the explicit commands of God? In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than Men, Peter, James, John will obey God. Peter, James, and John will experience arrest, imprisonment, persecution, and under certain circumstances, death. When an earthly ruler claims the rights and allegiances owed only to God, We are to obey God rather than men. Only God can be worshipped. In the New Testament, Christians are enjoined, pray for Caesar, and we do. But in the first century, when the Christians were told by the Roman government, pray to Caesar, we don't. Because our prayers are Restricted. They belong only to God. The Christian believer says yes to civil laws that don't conflict with the clear biblical commands of the Lord. Government is appointed by God and then approved by God. And so Christians consider the source of government. In verse, at the end of verse 1 it says, For there is no authority except from God. 
And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Verse 2, therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring crema, judgment on themselves. The old King James translates this damnation. But it isn't the kind of damnation that you think of. In, its, in the spiritual sense, we usually think of that as the judicial pronouncement of guilt for sins and then the consequences, but there is the judicial pronouncement of guilt and that's the point that Paul is making in this particular passage. Paul believes God appoints government and approves government. He's basically inviting you to ask the question, why should I obey the government? And Paul argues that God has established human government. He's also arguing that under most circumstances, God has established human government for human good. God allows the existence of human government. God allows positions, offices, contracts, constitutions. It's God's will that human governments exist and that people have the authority to rule within the context of the state or the municipality or the society. And so God has ordained that the family exists as the means where by human families are to operate. In the human family, parents are in charge. The Bible invites your home not to be a child-centered home, but a Christ-centered home. And God ordains that parents exercise authority in the home. God ordains that church leaders exercise authority in the church. God ordains that governments exist as the means whereby citizens can relate to one another. And that government officials are to exercise authority within the context of the state. But again, the very fact that human beings are to exercise authority in the home, does that give them the right to abuse their children? No. Does that give the right of pastors to abuse their church? No. Does the government have the right to abuse its citizens? It does not. In family, in church, in government, there are excellent leaders and there are poor leaders. There are leaders who exercise great care and concern and there are leaders who abuse their positions of responsibility. There are people who are faithful. And there are people who are unfaithful. In the home. In the church. In the government. But Paul's point here couldn't be more clear. Disobedience to governmental authority is a disobedience to God and will be judged. And it's easy to get sidetracked on issues of good and evil rulers and good and evil government. However, the thrust of the passage is about Christians and their responsibility as it relates to government. Christians in many cultures and many societies have little or no voice in human government. We are the marvelous exception. We have a wonderful opportunity to have a voice in the political processes. We have the wonderful opportunity to oppose government leaders who oppose God and who oppose Christ and who oppose dignity and decency. Paul argues resisting authority is resisting God since God has established the authority. And by, by the way, the expression, and those who resist will bring judgment. The Greek word, like I said, is krima. It means the sentence or the verdict. It's a word that was used to describe the decision that is rendered after a careful investigation, the same Paul who is, are writing these very words to the Roman people, to the church that is in Rome, will later be arrested by this very same Roman government. He will be incarcerated. He will be tried. 
he will be found guilty and he will have his head cut off. Christianity should never be confused with government. The very fact that Paul is saying what Paul is saying isn't an affirmation that he believes in malignant, malevolent government. Christianity isn't a political ideology. It isn't a political party. It's not a political movement. This may come as a shock to you, but Jesus isn't a registered Republican. But he isn't a registered Democrat either. And he isn't a registered Independent. Jesus has no party loyalty. Jesus understands that he will rule and reign forever and ever. Jesus understands what Paul wrote about long ago, that there will come a point in human history where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. You see, Jesus believes in a benign dictatorship. And he is a Lord that we can love because he has access to all information and will never be unjust. And so that doesn't mean that our view on government is disconnected or our political philosophy is disconnected from a biblical worldview. In other words, government and political philosophy isn't the one area of life that remains unaffected or untouched by our friendship and our relationship with Jesus, we evaluate political processes and political philosophy in light of the person of Jesus Christ and the character of Christ and the mission of Christ and the ministry of Christ. We're not to identify with murderers, with terror, with insurrection, with rebellion, with disobedience to just laws. Well, does that mean that we're free to disobey unjust laws? Yes, we are free to disobey unjust laws and we are also subject to whatever consequences the government demands. You see, there's one exception to resisting the government that's allowed by God to the believer. When governments or rulers exercise personal and immoral mastery over human life, when the ruler or the government orders you to disobey the Lord, disobey the Lord's commands, disobey the the scripture, you're always free to resist. Let me just be very clear here. You are a Christian. Jesus has set you free. You are free to obey God. Christ, no one can ever order you to disobey Christ. Some might, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, a family member or friend, or a government. You are free to obey Christ. You are free to disobey when anyone asks you to disobey Christ. But you have to make sure that the moral issue or the biblical command is in fact what the Bible says and not a man-made issue. And we go back to that tried and true example in Acts chapter 4 and 5 where the authorities arrest the disciples for teaching and preaching Jesus has risen from the dead. And you'll remember the disciples called on the people to repent of their sin. The disciples asked the people to believe in the gospel. The religious leaders, the authorities, ordered the disciples, listen carefully. They didn't say, stop believing in God, or stop believing the Torah, or stop believing in in Judaism. They ordered the disciples to stop preaching. It says in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Teach what? Teach what? Teach that God sent Jesus. Teaching that God sent Jesus to love us, to die on the cross for our sin, that he rose from the dead for our justification. They asked them to stop teaching in the name, in the name of Jesus and everything that that name represents. And then they said, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. But just a few weeks earlier, they said, crucify him and let his blood be upon us. 
and upon our children and their children. You see, there is a government that might say, you're free. You're free. You have religious freedom. You have religious freedom unless it somehow impinges on the government's right to exercise some sort of wicked control. Christians must resist when they're asked to perform immoral acts. The commands of God always take precedence. They always supersede. They always override the commands of men. Those who have followed in the apostles' footsteps have paid a terrible price for obedience to Jesus. Governments have tortured and tormented and imprisoned saints and burned our brothers and stoned our sisters and cut them up and torn them to pieces. It is happening right at this very moment in the Sudan, in Somalia, in East Africa, in parts of Asia, in all of Korea, in all of Saudi Arabia. Christians must not falsify documents, commit perjury, lie, cover up crimes of superiors and subordinates. Christians must never think it's okay to permit the cover-up of child molestation or, or child sexual assault or the brutal killing of the unborn. Christians are never okay with the idea that it's okay to violate your conscience in order to obey the government. This could mean anything from working in a government capacity to killing children or deploying nuclear weapons. Believers must not sin against their conscience. I'm not a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination. But I respect the rights of individual Christians who are convinced that killing people is never a good idea. We're to obey the Lord. Not too long ago, there was a police officer who was involved in an arrest-related killing. I shouldn't say killing. That's not the right word. You see, the military exists in order to protect citizens. The police exist in part to provide protection to us. I remember I was responding to a police officer's need. Happened to be a good Friday. A poli- a, 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 an individual had held up a convenience store and shot the convenience person, tried to escape, made his way, got cornered by the police. His windows were completely tented. The police surrounded him. There was a laser-like light that came out of the car. Police have no idea whether or not this is a laser light attached to a a high-powered rifle. One of our guys zeroed in on that light and took the shot and killed this particular person. But it isn't like when it's in the movies. It isn't like when you're watching TV and a police officer has to draw their gun and they have to kill a particular person. There is something hard. There is something difficult. There is something life-changing that takes place when you have to take another person's life. And this Christian police officer was no different from any other person with a deep sense of the profundity of life. And he was broken over the fact that he had to take another person's life. You know what was the first thing that, was, that he said to me? I wonder if Jesus is angry with me because I had to kill this person on Good Friday. And you know what I did? I opened my Bible to this chapter and to these verses. I said, just like I'm the pastor of a church and I'm ordained by God to love people and minister to people and pray with people and encourage people, You are ordained by God. You have a sacred calling. You have an ordination from God to protect the citizens of our city. It is a sacred trust that you've been given. Christians resist evil. Christians embrace that which is good. 
We are called to a profound obedience. We're called to a profound obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And our profound obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ brings us to a profound obedience when God tells us what to do in relationship to government. We are called to obey the government. And we are called to disobey the government when the government demands that we disobey God. So when can a Christian disobey the government? When the government compels you to violate the clear command of God, when the government asks you to commit an illegal act or an immoral act or an unethical act, when the government insists that you violate your conscience, when they insist that you disconnect from the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. So Christians submit to the purposes of government. Quickly, look what it says in verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Bearing the sword means the ultimate authority to preserve and protect human life by taking human life in order to protect human life. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. The government is given by God to promote good, restrain evil, protect citizens. I want you to pause for just a moment. And I want you to think, what if every single elected official actually believed that? Every, believe, every single elected official believed that the government is given by God to promote good, restrain evil, protect citizens. When a government official says to you, I want to exclude God, I want to promote evil, I want to restrain goodness, don't vote for them. Yeah, you can clap. Again, it's not, it's not clapping at, at what I just said. I, I want you to take a risk. Instead of saying, candidate, where do you stand on this particular issue? Or where do you stand on that particular issue? It's okay to ask them where they stand on particular issues. But at some point, someone needs to say, will you promote good? Will you restrain evil? Will you protect citizens? Rulers are not ordained by God to promote evil and restrain good and harm citizens. So Paul gives the fundamental principles and purposes of government. The reason why God's servant or God's minister in the government is called God's servant or God's minister doesn't necessarily mean that they even know that that's true. And I know that creeps some of you out when you, when you think of our elected officials as God's ministers. But remember something. Imagine a word, diakonos, that's what that word minister is. Imagine a word that takes Something that means to be forged with integrity and then dipped in humility. Then you understand the meaning of the word minister. Minister takes one word integrity, another word humility, puts them together in order to be the characterization of what it means. Ministry absent humility is not biblical ministry. Ministry absent integrity is not biblical ministry. And so Paul's point is evident. Government either wittingly or unwittingly serves the purposes of God. Again, can you imagine if every elected and unelected official really believed it? 
The force of the word indicates that government officials should serve with a sense of dignity and honor, coupled with humility and solemnity, knowing that they are God's ministers. They're appointed to, to good. Every police officer who I meet, every special agent who I work with, every single government official that I meet, I try to at some point in the conversation remind them that they are God's minister for the, promer- for the purpose of promoting that which is good and restraining evil. You know, the darkest time in ancient Israeli history was the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If government were taken from the earth, there would be complete lawlessness There would be complete chaos. It would be one of the ugliest ugliest things that you could ever imagine. You know, if you ever get a chance to go to Somalia, you'll understand exactly what I'm saying. Somalia is a government in our world that really has no government whatsoever. It is one vast country filled with pirates, thieves, and corrupt people who prey on other people. It literally is the law of the jungle in Somalia. I know for some of you, you're thinking, wow, that sounds like Washington, (laughs) D.C. But again, the state is given the ability to exercise justice, administer punishment to lawbreakers and criminals, and that's the bottom line. In verse 5, look what it says. Therefore... You must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. I want you to think about what Paul is saying. I want you to be subject not only because of judgment. In other words, Paul is inviting you. Obey the government so that you don't go to jail or you don't get in trouble. But do it also for your conscience sake. This describes the depth of obedience the Christian is called to both for the sake of punishment and for the sake of conscience, we're not simply to be afraid of getting caught, but we're also to understand God allows government for good. God has instituted government and government rulers, knowing or unknowing, witting or unwitting. They're agents of God. They exist. And when you pay your taxes, think of the police officer who you love and respect. Think of the person who provides help and hope. Think of the military officer who is serving on your behalf. Christians are to see the big picture with an informed conscience, living in profound subjection to God by the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so how does this work in the real world, Paul will write? In verse 6, for because of this you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Christians pay your taxes. Pay what is legally responsible to pay. Pay what you owe. Don't pay more. Don't pay less. Well, what if the taxes are outrageous? What if our taxes are misspent? What about government waste? What about the expanding government which digs deeper and deeper into the citizen's pocket? What if the taxes are made to outfit a Roman soldier and build a Roman road or, or, or purchase a Roman sword? Or forge a Roman spear and hack Roman citizens to pieces. I think Will Rogers said it best. We ought to be glad we don't receive as much government as we pay for. Yeah, he was right. That's the bright side. Ray Stedman writes, quote, You have a right, of course as does everyone, to protest injustice, to correct abuse. But don't be grumbling about the taxes that you have to pay. I have had to learn some lessons on this myself. The first time I had to pay an income tax was a few years ago. My income had been so low for so long that I never paid income taxes. But gradually it caught up and I finally had to pay. And I remember how I resented it. In fact, when I sent my tax form in, I addressed it to the Infernal Revenue Service. They never answered. 
although they did take the money. The next year, I had improved my attitude a bit. I addressed it to the eternal revenue service. He writes, but I've repented from all those sins, and now I hope to pay my tax cheerfully, unquote. I'm not exactly sure I'm prepared to ask you to pay your tax cheerfully. Because I don't want you to do something that you're going to feel guilty and condemned over. But I think in the grand scheme of things, that's exactly what the Bible says. Paul writes, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. By the way, when it says render therefore all their due, the tribute refers to land and property and income taxes. Custom refers to export and import duties. Fear is reverence for authority. It means honor and respect. Respect positions of authority. By the way, the Roman government had a heavy tax system. It might surprise you how much taxes people paid in the first century in the Roman Empire. There was an income tax. If you made an income in the Roman world, you know what your income tax was? 1%. I know you're thinking, I could live with that. But then there was a ground tax. It was a property tax. Now the ground tax was different. If you owned property, a man had to pay one-tenth or one-fifth of the crops that were produced by the land. So 20% of everything that the crops produced, you had to give to the government. You could pay with coin. You could pay with the actual crops that were harvested. Then there was a poll tax. It was paid by everyone from the age of 12 to the age of 65. The poll tax was simply an existence tax. Because you lived in a Roman world and you walked on Roman roads and you breathed Roman air, you had to pay one denarius a year. That constituted one denarius. So think of it in terms of one, one three hundred and sixtieth of your income. Pretty cheap. There were import taxes, there were export taxes. There were taxes for using main roads, for crossing bridges, for entering markets and harbors, for transferring animals, for driving carts and wagons. It's sort of like our evil toll road on E-470. I don't know if you've ever taken it, but you get on the evil toll road and they charge you. And I resent it every single time. The government's job was to make sure you live safely and ensure financial stability. That meant safety in your community. That meant resisting people who try to overcome your country. And so the, Paul, the Bible encourages us that we protect our community, that we, we protect its integrity. We resist criminals in the neighborhood. We reward the conscientious citizen. Paul tells the Romans that the only thing that they need to fear from the law are those who break the law. And the Bible warns us that at the end times, as they approach, that there will be increased lawlessness. R. Kent Hughes writes, quote, Through Jesus Christ, we can live out our duty as described in the word of God. We can also fulfill our duty to disobey when the will of God is at stake. When it became clear that the Nazis were pursuing their terrible racist policies, Pastor Martin Neimuller continued to preach the truth, and as a result, he was thrown into prison. And the prison chaplain, upon visiting Neimuller, asked somewhat foolishly, What brings you here? Why are you in prison? To which Neimuller replied angrily, And why aren't you here? We give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We give to God what belongs to God. Christopher Leish, in his book, Tikkun, wrote, The problem isn't how to keep religion out of politics, but how to subject political life 
to spiritual criticism without losing sight of the tension between the political and the spiritual realms because politics unavoidably rests on some means of coercion. It can never become a perfect realm of love and justice, but neither can it be dismissed as the work of the devil, unquote. George Washington told a brand new nation, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for all its benefits, and to humbly implore His protection and favor, unquote. George Washington, unelectable in 2014. He's just a little too extreme. Will Rogers again was fond of saying, I don't make jokes. I just watch government and report the facts. A government will never be able to embrace its duty as the providence if it takes God out of the marketplace. You see, imagine a government where they never acknowledge the providence of God. Imagine a government where they always fail to obey his will. Imagine a government that is never grateful for God's benefits and always refuses to implore his protection and favor. And you'll begin to understand what so many of our brothers and sisters face in so many parts of the world. You know what I'm hoping? I'm hoping that sometime this week you might remember Miriam, Yeba, Ibrahim, 28 years old, in the Sudan. She's chained to a wall with her one-year-old child. She's been sentenced to death. Pray for her. Heavenly Father, we do pray for her, even at this very moment. She's subject to the authorities. She refuses to renounce Christianity. She refuses to embrace Islam, even if it means being viciously torn from her Christian husband, even if it means not being able to care for her child under the best of circumstances even if it means her own life. Lord, in our protected and pampered world, Lord, we pray that a heart of sensitivity and compassion would continue to expand in us. Lord, we pray that we would continue to be grateful, 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 grateful to each and every man and each and every woman who serves so faithfully, diligently, consistently, for each man and woman in government who makes it their goal to resist evil and to promote good. Lord, we pray for each and every one as they're faced with invitations of compromise and wickedness and harm. Lord, we pray that you would give them courage to do what's right. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.